as we've been tracking along here through the Gospel of Matthew, um, I hope that you have seen that Matthew chapters 8 and 9 are working together. They are working in concert. Uh, there is an overarching uh, theme that these two chapters are um, laying before us and building. And uh, each, uh, each episode that we see seems to build on this theme more and more, kind of like bricks being laid one by one on the top of each other. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we've been getting a picture of Jesus' authority. His authority. And today, in 9, 18 to 26, that Jabin was so kind to read for us, the picture we get is even better. Not only does Jesus have the authority to save, but also Jesus has authority over death. So in this passage, we get a two-for-one. If you like a good deal, this is the passage for you. Two miracle stories for the price of one. And these stories, you can kind of think of them as being centered around two touches. Two touches. So let's set the stage. Uh, we're most likely, we're coming off of the account of Matthew being called as a disciple. And most likely we're in and around Matthew's house where Jesus is reclining with sinners. Who's there? There are Pharisees there. there John the Baptist's disciples are there. And Matthew begins this next section that, that we just read um, with a father who has just lost his daughter. We know from parallel accounts, we get a little more detail. Mark tells us that it was his 12-year-old daughter. Luke tells us that it was his only daughter. And I wonder, as Jabin was reading verse 18, if you felt the emotional weight of verse 18. It says, while he, Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler, and we get from other passages that this ruler's name was Jairus, and we get from another passage that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue, came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now, uh, this passage has, you know, been in the Bible for so long and people have had time to sit and think and meditate upon you know what this means some can look at it and think look at Jairus and his plea here his plea for help from Jesus and see a desperate faith to look at it and see see Hey, let's not mistake that mistake it that Jairus has somehow become a follower of Jesus or something that or that he was a great man of faith. There's some would come and read this passage and say, what we just see is a desperate person, a desperate individual. 
He'd heard of Jesus' miracles. Maybe he'd even, you know, seen some of them. Maybe possibly he had talked to someone who had been healed. And the thinking is, you know, he was not sure about Jesus, but what? Jesus was his only chance. Some have come to this passage and would say, you know, if you compare the faith of the centurion, right, in, in chapter 8, you'd say, you know, his faith was, was, a, was a full faith, was a bright faith. While in Jairus, we have maybe a, a smaller portion of faith than what was, what was visible for the centurion. Now, if we did a com comparison here, I would say, if you compare the faith of the centurion with the faith of Jairus, yeah, in some respect, his faith falls short in a certain way. What, what did, remember, what did Jesus say about the centurion? What did Jesus say? Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. But to say that somehow Jairus' faith was some, somehow impugned just because he asked Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter instead of what we saw in chapter 8 of merely asking Lord, Lord to what? Just say the word. To say that, I think, you know, it's a bit much. And I think more than that, to say that his faith was somehow just completely unfounded or completely in error Right, to say that it was only, only just his desperation that brought him to, to Jesus, I think if we say that, we've missed the point. We've missed the point of the passage. What is wrong with saying that this man had a desperate faith or that the woman that we encounter in verse 20 had the same thing or that we... When we came to Christ, in some sense, or in every sense, we're in what? Utter desperation, complete dependence. If you jump forward in the story a bit, you go to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, there's a fascinating uh, account there where Jesus finds himself, what? Um, surrounded by children. I don't know if you've ever been mobbed by children before. I actually haven't. can be frightening. But um, his disciples don't like this. They want to uh, put an end to the, the, whatever that, that spectacle was. But Jesus has some very strong words for them. He rebukes them, essentially, and he says in Matthew 19, verse 14, he says, let the little children, what? Come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And I think of this idea of child, childlike faith, not childish faith, but childlike faith. And here with Jairus is a beautiful, I think, a beautiful picture of dependent faith. Here, this old synagogue ruler becomes like what? 
becomes like a little child. And, and we see this childlike faith apparent in a few ways. First, you can see his faith is demonstrated in that he came to Jesus, as, as far as we know, he came to Jesus alone. Right? He didn't run to the doctors in town. We don't see that. Or maybe to the religious leaders who were there, right? In, at Matthew's house, the scribes, the Pharisees, the disciples of John the Baptist, they were all there. Who does he come to? He comes to Jesus. Second, I think his faith is demonstrated in his posture. How does he come to Jesus? He comes to Jesus like the leper. You think back to the leper. Jairus comes and he knelt before him. Mark says that he fell at his feet. Now again, put your cinematic hat on and visualize with me what's going on here. I like to imagine the reaction of that religious crowd that is you know, kind of surrounding this area near Matthew's house, probably. They're throwing their questions at Jesus, right? They're, they're murmuring these accusations against Jesus. And then who, who do they see coming? Jairus. No doubt they know him. They know Jairus, right? He's one of the, the rulers of the local synagogue. What, what, what are they thinking? Oh, here comes Jairus. He must have a question for Jesus, too. You know? Get in line, buddy. No fast pass here. But there is no question. There is no question from, from Jairus. There is what? A, a bended knee. A, a confession. A, a statement of faith in Jesus. And I hear Jairus' plea, and I, I, I get the feeling, the sense of what he is saying is, my daughter has died, but I have faith in you. I may not know who you are, a prophet, the Messiah, God in the flesh. What I do know is God is with you in a unique way in an extraordinary way. And I believe that you, Jesus, if you would just come to my house and simply lay your hand on her, I believe that she will be what? Brought back to life. Now again, imagine the scene with me. What did the scribes and Pharisees think of all of this? This posture, this request, what are they thinking? You know what I think they're thinking? The whole world has gone crazy. What is he doing? How can it be that this person that we know, like a colleague of ours, he's probably a pillar of the Jewish community. What is he doing? He is groveling at the feet of some preacher who's doing these things. We don't know by whose power. And he's from Nazareth, no less. What is going on here in this world is what they're probably thinking. 
When we think about the faith, his faith, this ruler's faith was not perfect. Whose, whose faith is? Raise your hand. Perfect faith. Anybody? But it was pleasing to God. It was pleasing to God. And I say this because you know, Jesus accepts this, his offer. When you read verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, we see Jesus' positive reply to Jairus' humble, faithful plea for help. Now, I think you'll agree with me that Jesus is not afraid to tell people that their faith is lacking. I think you'd agree with me on that. He's not afraid. If you look at the gospel narratives, Jesus is not afraid to do that. But does Jesus do that here? He does not do that here. There isn't a rebuke of Jairus or a correction. There's no, you know, O ye of little faith. What do we see? Jesus arises to raise this girl from the dead. Jesus gets up from the table with sinners to show that he, just as he has the authority to forgive sins, he has authority to conquer the curse of death. He has the power to raise the dead, to breathe life into dead bodies and bones. So, as I mentioned, right, you can think about this passage in the term, in, in the idea of two touches. So let's consider now the first touch. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' home. And on the way, he's interrupted. It's a fascinating story. It's, it's like I said, it's a two for one here. He's interrupted by a silent plea. And notice the contrast. Jairus comes and is boisterous, I think, and open and, and, and at his feet, and he's assuming a certain posture. And now he's interrupted by the silent plea, the wordless plea of another desperate soul, a woman who her situation See, seemingly was a little better than the, the little girl that the, our Lord was going to go save, right? So verses 20 to 22 describe this woman, her, her reason for coming to Jesus and her faith. Verses 20 to 22, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. That's an interesting word that Jesus uses there. Your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was made well. So let's compare these situations. Jairus' situation is desperate. But so too is this woman's situation. And you could make a case that it's even more desperate. So Jairus, if he loses his daughter, that is undoubtedly 
It's, it's a personal tragedy. It is. But there are things that he maintains, right? He maintains his possessions, his job, his house, the money, you know, his servants, a, a wife, right? He has a home. But for a moment, let's consider this woman. What does she have? Nothing. Due to her situation and this issue with blood, her health, in her health, she has nothing. In her wealth, most, most likely she had nothing, and she was poor. If she was married at some point, no doubt she had was no longer married at this point, or maybe she had never been married at any point. And even more than that, she was separated from within her culture. No normalcy of interaction with her culture, especially with her religion, the Jewish religion. If you look into Leviticus chapter 15, you'll see that it talks about uh, the idea of a woman being unclean for seven days after her monthly cycle. So now think about this woman. Think about this woman for a second with me. This woman had been, quote, unquote, unclean, not for seven days, but for 12 years. 12 years. And due to that issue, she, she could not participate in any, in any of, the, uh, of the, the, the vibrancy of her religion and the public rituals of worship for over a decade. And yet you see in her that she had not quite given up on life just yet we see a picture that she was restless in her pursuit of help. If you take the other parallel accounts, you can fill in some of the story. According to Mark, we know that what she had spent, she had spent all she had on physicians, but they didn't help. We also know that despite getting some treatments that she got worse, that this was a worsening condition. But one day, we pull from the other accounts that she had, what, heard. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Now, if you think about Capernaum at this point, who, who hadn't? Right? Who hadn't heard about Jesus, I would think, in, in that region right there. So what does she do? She develops a plan. She's restless in her pursuit of help. She develops a plan. I will sneak up behind him. I will hide myself in the crowd. And I will touch the, the, the tassel of his garment. Now we need to do a little fashion history here uh, to understand this a little better, right? Every Jewish man in Jesus' day had four tassels sewn upon the four cor corners of his cloak. 
and this wasn't just, you know, style points, right? These tassels, they were visible reminders of God's covenant commands. You can go into Numbers and Deuteronomy and see. So, her thinking is what? Just touch one tassel. Just one. This is her plan. Now, we could look at this and say, mm, what's up with this, right? It seems that at first you can make a case and say and argue that this woman's faith <laughs> seems superstitious, right? You might say it seems somewhat frivolous, somewhat superstitious. You know, just you're going to go touch his, tassel, touch his tassel. That's the plan. Right? Not give her the benefit of the doubt here. Uh, if you take the gospel writers and their accounts of this incident, I don't think this is the impression that we should get from the gospel here on this. Matthew, Mark, Luke and, and Matthew especially, what comes through is that she, what, hears about Jesus and then does what? She responds. She hears about Jesus and responds. This is one of the genuine and basic characteristics of discipleship. Hear Jesus and respond. And just like the synagogue ruler's faith, Jairus' faith, her faith in Christ comes when? Prior to her healing. Prior to her healing. And I think that's significant. I think that's important for us to think about the timing of that. I don't know if you've heard stories like this, but, but I have and sat and, and talked with people uh, that have stories like this. But um, folks who have come to faith in Jesus Christ because at some point earlier on they experienced a a healing from something that was dire, something that was deadly. But before that happened, they had been very rebellious. They did, that they did not have a faith in God or in Christ. That they wanted nothing to do with Christianity. Yet, yet through the through that gracious miracle, God does what? He softened their hard heart to the gospel. So think about that idea. Uh, that makes sense, right? That seems, nat that seems natural enough. Doesn't it? You're dying. God heals you. In gratitude, you what? You respond in faith 
and you serve him the rest of your life. That's wonderful. However, that's not the picture of faith here. I think there's a, a beautiful component to the faith that we see here. I think there's a marvelous component to the faith that we see here. Why? This woman's faith is not in response to a miracle. It's a faithful expectation of one. See, her faith may, may have been imperfect, may have been mixed with you know, other thoughts, other ideas, but it is bold. It is brave. And we discover in verse 22 that such faith is what? It's pleasing to God. We know it's pleasing to God because of what Jesus does. Jesus, Jesus heals her. That, that flow of blood, it, it dries up. Immediately she was made well. And more than, more than that, Jesus explicitly says what? He doesn't say, I have made you well. What does he say? Your faith. Your faith has made you well. There's only one comment made on her faith here, and it's positive. It's not negative. And when you think about touches, right, this touch, her touch on the hem of his garment was the cry of a believing heart. And you could say maybe her faith is childish, maybe, but I think it's, it's also, it's childlike. And, 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 I, and I want you to hear me this morning. I want you to know, you don't need to have all your theological ducks in a row to come to Jesus. Nor do you need to have all your commandment-keeping ducks in a row to come Come to Jesus. You just need to come. You need to push through the crowd and come to him. The more empty-handed, the better. That was the first touch. There is a second touch in the story. So, lest we forget, we were headed somewhere. And I think this miracle, this, this, this interruption in, in the drama here that, you know, probably keeps us in suspense... I think this, this interruption here, I think maybe it would have only strengthened Jairus' confidence in Christ. I don't know. But I think maybe as he's walking home with Jesus, 
he's thinking, okay, look what happened here. That's, that's encouraging. This, this woman was healed as he's approaching his house. What's interesting is he comes to his house and we have another interruption in the drama. And it's an expected one, but it is somewhat um, disheartening. At the very least, it's a stark reminder. It's kind of a punch in the face for Jairus about the reality of what is going on, right? Because wh what does he know? His daughter is what? Dead. Right? This woman's flow of blood stopped. And for that, that meant what? Life for her. But his daughter's flow of blood in her body had finally stopped. Her heart had stopped. So when he arrived at, at his home, the only life, and again, put, put your eyes on here, the only life that is there is what? It is, a, it is noise. It is the sad sound of flutes. The sadder sounding cries of the crowd that is there. I, it's difficult for me to imagine the the loss of a child, of one's child, uh, the thought. It's difficult. I have been close to those who were actively mourning the loss of a child. I have spoken with those who have experienced um, such a thing. We know the struggles that folks have had with even prior to being able to give birth and, and the struggles that, that, that folks and couples will have. You know, that may have been the type of scene that Jairus walked into, it may maybe that was the type of thing that he had come upon when he comes back to his house. Maybe, maybe it was mothers and family members and neighbors sincerely weeping and wailing. But with a little bit of the context here and with a little bit of the reading of the passage, um, it is more likely, it is more likely that those causing this commotion were professional mourners. Professional mourners, what a job. You don't see that on LinkedIn too often nowadays. And it may sound very strange to us, but in ancient Israel and even, and even today in, in some cultures, professional mourners were hired at the time of death. In the Jewish traditions and practices, it was said that for a burial, even the poor
tourist in Israel should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman. Now, think with me about Jairus. You know, since he was, you know, a ruler, essentially, he was likely a man of some means. So this combination of this group here, of the, the mournful music, the wailing of most likely many women, right? The potential hand clapping, the, the beating of the chest, the tearing of, of rending of garments. I'm sure this was quite a commotion. It, ha it had to be. So when you take this reality of that this is a thing, professional grievers, this makes better sense of what Jesus says, of Jesus' directness in what he says and the response to Jesus' directness, right? If you take that understanding and you put it on top of the passage, it makes sense. What do we see in verse 24? What does Jesus say? Go away. Go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. So Jesus, very direct here. And then what is their response? They laugh. The mourners laugh. Now, now think with me for a moment. Jesus is not denying her death here. Jesus is not some, you know, brilliant medical specialist who's arriving at the house with, you know, this correct second opinion. Like, oh, no, no, no. You guys, you know, she's in a coma. You know, if, if I hadn't gotten here when I did, you would have buried this girl alive. Jesus is not denying her death. He is redefining it. Jesus is redefining it. Her death is not the end. It's not the grim and final reality that it seems. That it's nothing worse than a deep sleep. That in due course, she will be getting up again. And in due course, Jesus will what? Be dying and what? Getting up again. And because of this, you and I will likewise be what? Dying and getting up again. She's only sleeping. And what is their response? Well, they're not hearing this. I wonder if partly they were like, because you know, they, they have us on the clock for like four more hours. That's a, lot of, you know, that's a lot of dough for a professional griever. I don't know. They weren't having it. They wouldn't hear it. They laughed at him. It was scornful. They, they laughed at him. Notice, 
they were grievers, right? They, they were mourning. They were, they were crying. They were wailing. But what? Their tears quickly turned to what? Laughter. I think which clearly indicates this, the, you know, the superficiality of their grief, right? They're wailing, crying, and then all of a sudden, you know, chuckling. But now think with me, from a human perspective, from a human perspective, you know, their laughter kind of makes sense. Right? Because, of course, th this poor girl is really dead. What's the difference? They don't know who they're dealing with. They don't know. You don't know what you don't know. They don't know who they're dealing with. The son of the living God who can calm a deadly storm with one word, who can tame a thousand untamable demons with one command and can surely tell a sleeping body to what? Wake up. Wake up. Someone's excited back there. All right. Sounds good. And so, as verse 25 records, here's the miracle. With complete authority over the situation, and after the crowd had been put, put outside, our Lord does what? He went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. The weeping, the wailing, the great commotion could not bring her back. Yet the powerful touch of Christ literally woke the dead. A touch that we see spread, that idea spread to others. Because it says what? The report of this, what? Went throughout all this district. It spread, it spread from Capernaum to Jerusalem to Damascus to Rome to India to London to New York to where we sit even right now and it is still traveling right now, giving hope to all who put their trust in Christ and his resurrection power. As we come to close this morning, what is our hope? Our ultimate hope is not to escape death. You might say, wait a minute. <laughs> Our ultimate hope is not to escape death. Who escapes death? This 12-year-old girl, she's, she's going to die one day again, isn't she? Just as Lazarus, Lazarus, who was also what? Raised from the dead. But he would surely die. Yes. 
See, this, this miracle story is not about how we should trust that Jesus will save us from an earthly death or from death itself. Jesus is not some mythical, m mystical, magical, mythical fountain of youth. No. He is our resurrected Savior. See, the story that is before us, it's really just a miniature version of the great story of our own salvation. In the death of Christ, hear me this morning, in the death of Christ is the death of death. In the, in the death of Christ is the death of death. He takes on the curse of death that Adam brought into the world. Specifically, in the death of Christ is the death of our spiritual death. We will be forgiven our sin. And in the resurrection of Christ is the death of our physical death. We will rise again bodily. Since Christ died and rose again, we who are united to him, though we may die, we will also rise again to a better life. That is our hope. It's a hope that is based on the reality of the resurrection. And in a hope that I hope brings some encouragement to you today. Our culture is so superficial. In our superficial culture, we need to hear that death is real, that it is difficult and painful, but with Jesus, death is only temporary. So we say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Dying is gain when you're with the one who has authority over death. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.